Mansell with HJ Sports, and today we're going to go over our new sites within the Tetra line for 2022. So new for 2022, we actually came out with a new way to mount your scope housing to the infinite adjust bracket. No longer do you have to worry about your vertical adjustments uh, intertwining with the second axis adjustments. So as you'll see on the scope housing, uh, there's actually an additional brick. You can either mount that to the inside of the riser or to the outside of the riser. We recommend that for most traditional bows, you mount that to the inside of the riser and for any sort of sight that you're gonna mount in line with the bow to use the outside. Just flip that around um, and mount it to the outside of the riser. So within each of the product categories, we have the Tetra Max, the Tetra, and then the Tetra LT. As always, our Tetra line of sights come in four different scope housing size options, an inch and three eighths, an inch and five eighths, an inch and three quarters, and then also our four pin housing, which is an inch and three quarters. We also offer a 10 thousandths pin and a 19 thousandths pin for both single pin and four pin options. On the Tetra itself, we once again have micro adjustments as well as your macro gain adjustments for left and right. For your vertical adjustments on your Tetra bow sight, you'll want to use the screw right here on the infinite adjust rail and the screw below that. You'll just loosen those and slide it up and down. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra bow sight is the integrated scope ring that has a built-in level. Another key feature on the 2022 Tetra site is the ability to take a 2500 blue burst light. This is an added on accessory, but you can actually put that on there to add light to your pin or to reduce light. With that, we also have mechanical rheostat, which is an exclusive feature to HHA on the Tetra line. You'll be able to turn in the rheostat if you want to dim the light, and then you'll also be able to turn it out if you want to let more light in. Also on our 2022 Tetra line bow sights, the Tetra comes in either a fixed frame, our Hunter Edition frame, or it comes on a four to eight inch adjustable dovetail. All HHA products are 100% made and sourced in the USA, and they carry a 100% lifetime warranty. For any more questions, please visit our website at www.hjsports.com. Hello, we're at the ATA show at uh, Veteran Innovative Products, uh, an all-American made and manufactured broadhead. So we've got a new one for 2020 called the Combat Veteran 4-Blade. As you can see, 4-Blades got a lot of the same high-quality materials we used with our original 2-Blade Veteran, but the Combat Veteran has a different deployment system. How it deploys is you just squeeze a little bit on your main blades, okay, those compress, and then the broadhead opens. It still has our momentum management compressible blade technology. So the the cutting diameter is inch and a quarter by two inches on this when deployed. Uh, in flight, it's one inch by inch and a quarter. Another feature we added this year with these heads uh, is that you can exchange the bone breaching field point tip with a 125 grain setup if you would like. So swap the tip out, get you 125 grains instead of 100, which is big with those Western hunters. And then it's really simple to lock back in place, roll those blades up, and then it's a click and another click on the other side. It's completely set in, will not prematurely deploy, will not rattle free, solid containment, 100% deployment every time. So we've made a lot of good adjustments and refinements to it to make sure that it's guaranteed to deploy every single time. So that's what's new for VIP this year. 
Welcome back, guys. This podcast is brought to you by RPG Coffee Company, a veteran-owned and operated socially responsible coffee company born to support members of the military, law enforcement, and firefighting communities by donating 50% of their profits. The true secret to living is giving. And don't forget to join the RPG Coffee Club today. Don't wait until you run out. Stay ready to rock by having RPG Coffee delivered straight to your door each month with our coffee club. folks thank you for tuning into another episode of bucks of america podcast i'm your host jeff vance my guest tonight his name is david merrill and he is the the founder and the creator and the and the, the legend behind the bow spider and i get to pick his brain about what he what was the inspiration behind it talk about his most recent safari hunt what he's got going on his plan but most of all I'm looking forward to finding out more who he is because i came across david and crystal at the uh, Iowa Deer Classic here back in March, and I, I really liked his product. The way he demonstrated it made perfect sense, and I liked and I, I used it this weekend at the HHA USA Mission 17. And a lot of people came up a lot and talked to me about it because because they're very curious about it, and some of them even even heard of it. So I'm going to let him talk about him, so this way we can get everybody caught up on what why I like the product and why I recommend it to anybody. So Dave, why don't you take it away, sir? Well, you, we, we're going to have to go a, a little ways back, you know, like, like, you know, a couple decades, but <laughs> my dad was a, a big fisherman and we did a annual family deer hunt for one weekend. And then we do an annual family duck hunt over usually Thanksgiving, right? So the weekend before Thanksgiving, they had their deer hunt and he'd go with his brothers, my uncles, and we hunted Saturday. That was it. One day a year I got to go deer hunting and then you know, we'd all go duck hunting for one morning. That was my sum of my hunting, right? And other than that, it was small game or watching Bambi get Bambi's dad get shot on TV and go, that's a big buck. Yeah. <laughs> Disney, Disney kind of uh, backfired on that one at least. Cause I, I'll, every time we went deer hunting, I wanted to shoot Bambi's dad, but uh, <laughs> my dad was huge into fishing. Like I said, he went on three Alaskan fishing trips when I was in grade school, middle school, and I didn't get to go, but we'd go fishing every weekend. And I think that, uh, <laughs> I think that exposure to that much fishing in such a short few years, I, I had enough fishing when it, when it came time to go hunting, I was 14 years old, a very dear friend of mine named Kendall Wood suggested if I got a bow that he would take me to his family's ranch bow hunting for a week long trip. Right. Exciting. He, yeah. Oh, here I am, you know, 10, 11, 12, I got to go on one Saturday deer hunt a year. And now I'm going to get to go on seven days in a row. That's seven years worth of hunting, man. I was uh, so true, you know, kid in a candy store. And I still remember to this day, uh, Easton game getter, you know, XX seventy five arrows, game getter twos. That I actually have a set of those right now in my quiver. No kidding, I have the exact same make and model of what you just rattled out there. I'm using that to cite it in my expedition, just because I just like aluminum arrows for target for a three D archery. They're they're fine. I mean, there's nothing they they've taken game and and they will work. But you know, you you take any kind of side impact on those arrows and they're done. Exactly. 100% they're done. And, and these were logs back then, you know, they were, they're big, big diameter shafts, but I took nine over on that hunt and I came home with three. 
Okay. Destroyed a couple target practicing. I was pulling maybe 50 pounds, 45. I was legal for deer, but there was quite the arc. I remember I had a 15 and a 25 and a 30 yard pin because I didn't have, I had too much arc to have a 20 yard top pin. I had a 15 yard top pin. But I can remember a three-point muley stepping out in a cornfield at about 27 yards, and I sent an arrow through its antlers because, well, I was looking at the antlers. <laughs> to this day, I could still, I mean, that arrow, tink, 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 right through its antlers, and he bounded off, you know, obviously scot-free, no, no, no harm, no foul, but I was pretty well hooked from that moment on, for sure. That that was nice of them to take you out for the week, so... Was this a childhood friend or a friend of your dad's that, uh, kind of a friend of my dad's that, you know, he had young kids at home. They're about 10, 15 years younger than me. So he had some, you know, three to eight year old kids at home and he had, he had switched to bow hunting five, six years earlier because he wasn't being able to draw, uh, the Oregon is the state we were living in at the time. They went from a general rifle over the counter to a draw rifle. And now they've gone to a draw, draw archery. So he looked at it and said, okay, every three or four years I can rifle elk hunt or I can pick up this archery thing and I can go every year. So this was 90, about 96, 97 when that first trip with him. And he had been going since, you know, 91, 92. So definitely, uh, Archery was kind of in its infancy still, for sure. You know, guys that had had picked that up versus rifle hunting. I'm not talking the, the guys in the 70s with recurves. And no, I'm, we were still shooting flipper rests. And I I didn't have fiber optic sights that first two years. I had brass pins, right? And uh didn't have D-loops. Those things didn't exist. I Well, I just got into it when releases were just becoming a thing. But we just had this little rubber snubber button that went under your release between your arrow. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I've seen so, pictures of those. Yeah. 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 It was a, you know, 30 yard pipe plate accuracy out of one of those was, was pretty good. You had to practice to get that. And now <laughs> I can take anybody, walk down to any sporting goods store and they can walk out, you know, that day with 30 yard pipe plate accuracy, no questions asked. So the, the technology has definitely, removed some of the barriers of entry to our sport but still i can i still a lot of these hunts i go on whether i'm going to alaska or africa i'm chasing that dream of that 14 year old boy going i felt like i was you know lewis and clark going on an expedition for a week and in reality we went and hunted 240 acres of alfalfa fields and cornfields in eastern oregon so that's where you were originally from is eastern oregon uh, actually I was, uh, I was born in Colorado and about 12, my family moved from Colorado to Western or Eastern Oregon, but we hunted the farm fields in Western Oregon. So there's a, there's a pretty big, uh, topography change from, you know, the Cascades and the coast range over to Eastern Oregon. You go from Pacific Northwest rainforest and 10 yard visibility to high desert sagebrush, 200 yard visibility. Oh yeah, I did some uh, back in 2008 when everything went to hell. I was I ended up going hitchhiking. I spent some time over there in Eastern Oregon, going through the Tillamook Forest, going down to Salem, McMinn Mill, McMinn, McMinnville, where the beavers are and stuff like that. And uh, that was that was a trip. So it's like I, I just took advantage of how the entire economy was just going in the gutter, and I just 
packed up my stuff and I was homeless. So it's like, well, I have nothing better to do. In the Arizona, it's 115 degrees for a high and it doesn't get cold or cool until three o'clock in the morning and the turns around gets hot again. So yeah, I, I, I spent some time on Oregon out in Eastern Oregon. It's absolutely, just absolutely gorgeous out there. Spent some time oh, yeah. in Taggart, Beaverton, uh, where else? Uh, Vancouver. So. It's just I just really appreciate that area. It's just unfortunately where the politics have really driven down the um, the economy and such, especially with Chaz and Chop and everything that that went transpired in 2020. And then uh, I don't know if you've you've heard of uh, IP13 yet. That I is not. that is something that they're putting on the docket in 2024. It's a little ways out there, so they're hopeful people will forget. But the goal is to be able to stop hunting and fishing, or stop hunting, big game hunting, uh, elk and subsistence. Basically, and basically stopping you from living off the land. Another thing is they want to take away uh, animal husbandry as well as a as an aspect of it. Now it was put on the docket last year, but there was a big enough outcry, not just statewide, but actually all the way out here to the Mississippi. People were actually calling in and telling them not to put push this through. So it got stopped once, so hopefully it stopped again. But yeah, it's IP thirteen, and it's it it is absolutely heart wrenching what they're trying to do because they're also trying to stop uh, artificial insemination. And those who are familiar with cattle and have a really successful herd, you need that aspect to be able to have a fully uh, um, prosperous farm because that's you can live and die off of that if things go south for you. Oh, I, it's a uh, you know I own horses. I have five horses, and I I right out of high school got got an opportunity to go to a guide school in Eastern Oregon, and it was uh, not Eastern Oregon actually. It was. Western Montana. It was Royal Time Guiding Outfitter School, and that was circa 2003. I got my guiding outfitting license from them and got hired with uh, Steen's Wilderness Adventures out of Eagle Caps, Wallowa, Joseph, Oregon, and I spent several seasons packing clients in and out. I got to guide a few, and, you know, that was uh, that was another culmination of just wanting to be Lewis and Clark, wanting to be out there and out in the wilds and how do, how do I do this? Well, I get a job doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, those horses of mine, you, you, you talk about getting rid of animal husbandry. Those things are babied all year long. I, they they stand out here at the, at the corral for 330 days and I take them out in the woods for 30. And you know what? For the 30 days that I use them and abuse them and put them away wet, it's okay. They're going to come stand around and eat hay at a hundred dollars a ton or, or it's actually now like three hundred dollars a ton for hay so man and you know, you're out of wyoming aren't you now correct yep, yep. i moved here in 2013 very fun so in your youth then you were able to get after any uh, elk while you lived out there in, in oregon or did you just primarily after mule deer no i uh i chased uh during the early season i'd go on the uh east side of the state and go hunt the, the Rocky Mountain. And then later in the season, towards November, on the west side of the state, you could hunt uh, cow-only Roosevelt's. They've since changed that. You have to pick one or other. But you could have four weeks hunting in September for Rockies, and then you could have almost five weeks hunting in November, December for Roosevelt cows. Wow, that's a, that's quite a length of time there. But uh, those areas where those Roosevelt cows are, it's that's not easy territory to walk through. I mean, my experience going through the Tillamook Forest, like, it is amazing what you cannot see and how much things. There was one time I was, uh, when I was there, I was coming, I was cresting a hill. And all of a sudden, I just, all of a sudden, I hear the forest just turn into a rolling thunderstorm. But it was just the the, bolt, the elk just running away. 
And I, I, never killed, saw, I never saw him. Never did. Uh, yeah. No, I've killed uh, seven cow elk Roosevelt's with a bow and never got a bull. Uh, my worst story is I spotted a herd on the other side of a, a logging landing. I'm on one. They're on the other. I'm right on the clear-cut edge against some old-growth timber and some what they call reap rods, so knee-high trees and then 200-foot-tall trees. And those elk were about 250 yards away from me, same elevation. They had to drop lower than me and then climb back to me, but they were just coming right along that that edge, that seam, right? So I backed up and got in ambush position. And this was earlier August, right? I mean, maybe the last week of August, first week of September, somewhere in there. And I still remember ranging the first cow that came out. She was at 30 yards. I had the old Bushnell monocular, the one-eye rangefinder. And uh, I put the rangefinder down, started to draw back. A second cow came out. I'm like, perfect. It's a little tiny, you know, skitter road going up into the timber, and they're just crossing it. And I draw to full draw. That cow clears the kind of the lane, and a bull elk steps out and stops. And he was only a five-point rosy, but about 300 inch. Nice bull. Really beautiful chocolate horn. And I centered my 15-yard uh, pin right behind his shoulder and shot a log right underneath him. Oh, man. <laughs> my brain just went to, you know, put that pin right behind the shoulder. And he stopped right there and was kind of because the lead cows had stopped either sniffing me or just they were in the thick enough brush they felt safe and that arrow made a little bit of noise but there was about eight elk behind that bull and there was those two in front of him they were popping and breaking branches and they they moved off about another hundred yards he bugled and i tried to chase him but as you know it was 10 to 15 yard visibility stuff and i never did catch up with them again so they moved so fast and so quickly through that brush it's just Essential, so just a majestic thing. I mean, you got to guide for how many years? Uh, what I started '04, and I worked until '09 with Steen's Wilderness Adventures. You got to see. You probably have some wonderful stories. And do you have any fun stories from with when you were with some of your clients? <laughs> I, I don't want to throw this guy under the bus, <laughs> but I will. Uh, I spent a week with a guy, and he is a great guy. He killed twenty five bull elk, and he was. He was up there, late 70s, almost early 80s, and he wanted to kill one more elk, so he came on a guided hunt. I got him five shot opportunities, three of which were under 200 yards in a week of hunting. I remember we went out and we found about a 340 bull, and in that unit, that's a great bull. I mean, most units, that's an awesome bull, but we would struggle to find a bigger bull in that Snake River unit. There's a few 360, 370 type bulls, but... You know, it's pretty much a 300-inch bull unit. At least it was when I was there. I remember finding this elk. He was about 900 yards away, but it was a 10-minute horse ride and a you know couple-minute stock, and we could be right within three, two to 300 yards of him. We just had to make a 180 around him. And he looked at me, and we'd, we'd ridden about 45 minutes out to this point to glass. And I said it was another 15-minute horseback ride. And he said, not too far. I'm done. We're not going after it. The very last morning, I mean, and I'm just heartbroken. This is one of my very first guided clients. I'm wanting to get a kill under my belt, right? We're having coffee right at the gate, right at the wall tent. I look up 200 yards. It's just just turning twilight to where you can see. And on the other side of the gate from the, you know, maybe, I don't know, 100-acre corral that we had the horses in, I could see animals moving, but I knew that 
you know, it was either somebody else's horses that were loose. And then as it got just a touch lighter, I could tell it was elk. And they're 200 yards up the hill from the tents from where we're sleeping. We stalked around and I had my uh, tripod for my binos and he had forgotten his shooting sticks and his hearing aids. So I couldn't talk to him and he had no shooting sticks. Uh, he took about a 90 yard shot and missed. And there was one more side hill bowl where we, I had him at 320 yards. We were on a log and he said, no, it's too far to shoot. So I'm like, all right, we snuck in side hill and we got about 90 yards above that bull. He's looking up at us. I sat him down, sat him in my lap, holding him against me, kind of holding the butt of the rifle, aiming at the elk at 70 yards down the hill. And I said, put it in his chest and shoot him. And he missed that one as well. So, oh man, at the end of that week, after, you know, helping him on and off his saddle and catching his horse and, you know, wiping his butt and his nose, he gave me a $20 tip. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man, that's a slap in the face right there. But it's it's a heck of a story, though, to reminisce on. Well, I talked to the outfitter after that, and the outfitter uh, took him on a guided sheep hunt. And, I mean, I, he was a great guy. I'm not – he's I had a great week with him, had fun. But two or three years before that, he drew a Oregon sheep tag, and he went with our outfitter on the sheep hunt. and. Killed a nice 170, 160 ram, and he handed the, the guide a $100 tip at the end of a successful sheep hunt. And I was like, okay. So, but yeah, that was, you know, after after guiding and doing that, I uh, I figured out I had to get a, I got married and I had to get a job that actually paid money <laughs> instead of <laughs> yeah. just room and board. Room and board jobs are fun and I have lots of memories, but. I went from uh, kind of landscaping, lawn care, into just some industrial jobs. And then uh, about 08, I got a job in the timber industry. And that was not the greatest industry to be. I started 07, driving a log loader, emptying log trucks every day. So they'd come to the mill and I'd unload the log trucks and stack the logs and then feed the logs to the mill. So definitely uh, not afraid to get my hands dirty and, you know, came from from a family where you had to work. That's just what you did, right? Mm -hmm. They shut that lumber mill down in 08 and it, it got a little tough there. So the wife uh, decided 09, 010, she's like, let's move to Alaska. So we moved up there for a few years and I figured out real quick that you either got to be tough or dumb to live in Alaska, maybe a little bit of both. And <laughs> I'm not tough and dumb enough, I think. So we moved down here to Wyoming and we had our first kid uh, up there, and it's pretty hard when you're, you know, that far from family. So we moved down here close to be close to her dad, and we've stayed. And I probably will die in this state. I love it here. Yeah, Wyoming is a pretty popular state. I mean, I like it. I've, I've, when I was hitchhiking, I went through Wyoming a few times for, for a few for a while, up through Gray Bowl and over to uh, uh, Sheridan and such. And you, you, meant, you meant Colorado, right? Oh, that's this Colorado. Yeah, that is Colorado. Yeah, because because when I was going when I was going through Wyoming at the time, it, it, I didn't go. The reason why I skipped over that area was because I, no, I was down. In, I went to Cheyenne and worked work my way on the western side of the state. Well, technically, be the eastern side of the state. Excuse me, and because the the western side was all the uh, Yellowstone was under underneath the oh, under under, uh, under fire because the yeah. massive forest fire. So it's like I kind of detoured around that way. So it's like. Yeah, going down that way, and then wake the way up to Colorado. But yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous to uh, Wyoming. Man, well, I, we like a, to joke that uh, Wyoming's full, but Colorado has plenty of room. 
<laughs> that is the way to go. Kind of like uh, North Dakota and South Dakota. It's like that's just the the civil civil rivalry between the two of them. So what? Yep. Uh, uh, so now, what are you doing now? That do you just do you do the bow spider full time now? Yeah, bow spider full time. We have a, a slew of employees, and I never thought I would have people answering to me every day, asking me questions of what they're supposed to do. And it's a, it's a very weird, uh, I guess, role to step into after being, you know, in, in Alaska. And then here I was in the oil field for quite a while doing okay. DHV, downhole video, explosives, solids control, you know, just, I never did roust about stuff. I always had kind of a dedicated job and schedule, but yeah, to go from, getting your hands dirty and being on the business end of either timber industry or oil industry or construction or lawn maintenance, lawn care, right? To d- doing that, to go into this has been a, it's been a very eye opening experience. You you don't know what you don't know and you don't, what you don't know can kill you, right? It's uh that is very true. See here in the Midwest, it's like either you're either a farmer or you're in the factories or you're doing fast food or, or working at a bank. There's, there's, there's not a whole lot of, of, uh, timber work anymore because up in northern wisconsin or minnesota there's a possibility we're working up in the higher range but where i grew up in uh, northern iowa southern minnesota that's all we pretty much had so it was always in the factory work but i always ended up working with us um, fiber um fiberglass that stuff is not fun to work with i'd rather deal cutting logs than deal with fiberglass because it gets in your hands getting your into your fingernails, into your beard. It's just not a good scenario. And then it's on top of that too. It's like to clean yourself off, to get rid of it. You have to use acetone and the, how much your body absorbs that stuff is just so toxic. It's absolutely horrible stuff to, 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 to live and breathe. And now I just work for IT. So uh, it's a big change for myself. Now, what created the inspiration to the, the what's the inspiration behind the bow spider? So, it come down to a crucible moment of missing a bull elk of a lifetime standing on a pack trail in the wilderness, right? And my bow was strapped to my back. My buddy's behind me. I'm signaling to him to get my bow unbuckled and give it to me so I can kill this elk that is we've just happened upon and surprised, but he hasn't spooked away and run away yet. And, I mean, a bull elk of anybody's dreams, a monster. And I can remember the next day sitting at camp we're going to go on a long midday hike and then go hunt a different basin for the evening. And I had a, a moral kind of dilemma debate of, do I carry this thing the whole way? Cause we're going to be on the pack trail again, but it's five mile hike up to this basin. We want to hunt and then it's time to hunt. Or do I strap this on my backpack again? Cause I really don't want to carry it while I'm, you know, laboring to get up this pretty steep mountain pass trail to get into this next basin. And I, I mean, I ended up strapping it back in my backpack again, but the whole time I'm like, you know, it's going to cost me another elk. It's going to, and I said, why can't I just have both? Why can't I have it in my hand when I want it? And so that was kind of the moment of developing prototypes. And I, I had, uh, got laid off in the, uh, oil field industry and had gone back to college to get some education. I was kind of tired of, you know, after getting laid off in the timber industry and laid off in the oil industry. I was a little bit soured on working for the man and was getting a, a, de- a degree in business management so I could, you know, go go into an office and have some stability in my life, I guess. And I just got hooked up with the right 
you know, mechanical design guys and got hooked up with the 3D printer in the 3D printing shop and kind of said, hey, I got this idea for a prototype. And we just started making them and going out and destructive testing. Them. And the second year, there's actually one on the back in that photo. I'm wearing one of the very first prototypes on my vinyl harness. Okay. And I hunted all September with that that fall. And I didn't even have prototypes for my buddies. I just had them, one for me. And I kind of showed them a little bit like, you know, remember last year when I was strapping my bow on my back? Well, I've got this little hook thing here that I'm going to try. And, you know, it worked pretty well. Now, 3D printing plastic was not, and it's just not up to manufacturing standards for load and shock and tensile strength. So they were pretty, pretty fragile. But we got to the point where, we got them to where you you had you struggled to break them just in 3D printing, and so when we moved that from 3D printing to you know an industrial process, they're, they're indestructible now. And we played around with tolerances, 30 summer editions on the 3D printer. And once we got to a final, a finalized kind of hey, I thought this is going to be done. We have 30, 32 or 33 renditions from the final, what I thought was final to the product you actually buy in the stores today. So, you know, it took uh, 2017 is kind of when I started. We launched product end of 2019. So 24 solid months. And 2017 is when I had the the prototype. So we started 2016, right? And started messing around in the college with how are we going to do this and how can we do it? And so, yeah, it's been it's been a ride. It's been a journey. That's pretty neat, yeah. It's because um, well, the one that my wife and I use, yeah, you're right. The the the, the tolerance on it is so well re, well refined. Is the way we have it arced and such. It's like almost virtually impossible because it's like you. It's nice and designed to fit around your hip, and the way you have it set the mount on your back, it's like it's it's very feasible to take everything off and make it very comfortable to do it. So why did you go with a two point system then? As far as yeah, because you have the one well, the one you put in your backpack, and one in your hip. Was that was that was that your complete intent as you were doing that twenty four months of testing? We we first started like I said, I just wanted it on the backpack and be able to take it off. Didn't want it on the back. Didn't want, didn't care about it anywhere else. Yeah. But as we started working with that manufacturer, and we we discussed like you know it wouldn't be horrible to have it on the hip, but you know in its infancy, I'm like, well, it's going to be on your back ninety. Nine percent of the time, and on your hip, one percent. Uh, on this last hunt in Africa, it was about fifty-fifty. You know, if if we were going through more waist-high brush, because uh, the the bushes there are <laughs> they're venomous. Everything will poke or stab or bite or kill you in Africa, and that's not a joke. But if we we're going through more waist-high stuff, I'd put it on my back. If we we're going through more head-high stuff where I'm having to duck, I'd put it back on my hip. And so what we did in Africa this last go around was spot and stock. And that's the way I wanted to do it. The first time I went to Africa was 2013. Got a, got a kind of buy one, get one auction hunt. And so I took my wife and a good friend of mine and his wife and we went and we had a blast, but I spent that whole safari in a box in a blind over water ambushing animals, which is a hundred percent the way you, if you want to go rack up the kill list in Africa, go sit in the box. But I wanted to see the sights, the sounds, the smells, the birds, be exposed to the snakes and the ticks and 
you know, basically mono a mono. I went for Cape Buffalo and I wanted to spot and stock at Cape Buffalo and, and we did it after seven days. But having the attack pack and back to the bow spider, you know, you talked about on the backpack versus the hip. Well, then it, it morphed into one on the wall at home, one on the headrest, one on the tree. And it's now, you know, depending on your unique situation, you can mold and adapt those pucks anywhere and everywhere. And so it is the, the most comfortable is on the back of a backpack, right? That's where the weight, weight is evenly distributed on both shoulders and on your hips. And if you're hiking, say, 10 miles in on a elk hunt in the dark on a pack trail, that's where you want it. But the second you step off that pack trail and start sneaking through the brush, it's much more convenient to have it on your hip. And so that's why we say the hip is the most convenient and the back of the backpack is the most comfortable. Because it's just, you can be going from glassing to having your bow secured on your hip to back having your bow in your hand and vice versa in a second. And it's, I mean, essentially completely quiet. If you're, if you're slow with uh, stowing and retrieving, it makes no noise, right? So instead of having to lay your bow on the ground or find the right tree with a limb to where you sit there and can hang it on the tree, uh, just hang it on the hip belt of your pack, glass around, rest your arms instead of fatiguing your arms all day. And when you need it, you can retrieve it quickly. And if we're in elk, if elk have vocalized they're right there, my bow's going to be in my hands, period. It's not on my back. It's not on my hip. But anytime I have to move more than about 20 yards, it goes on my hip. If I have to move more than about 200 yards, it goes on my back. That's just the way I hunt. And the coolest part is everybody's favorite is you get back to the truck, you hang one of these around the headrest of your truck, and now you don't have to take your stabilizers off. You don't have to tote that hard bow case around, and you don't have to worry every time you hit a bump or hit the brakes in the truck, did my bow just slide off and a pack slide on top of it, right? Or is your bow sitting there rubbing against my bow? Because two bows, you know, strings rubbing against each other, bouncing down a logging road, one's going to cut through the other string before you get to the end of the road, period. And then you're bouncing your side off of who knows what. So to, to be able to quickly just hang it right there behind the seat, a lot of people only use it there. And that's fine with me. I don't care where you use it. Just buy one. Buy two while you're at it. Yeah, I need to. Uh, last year when uh, my buddy and I were going hunting and we, we didn't, we, it was just the two of us. We didn't want to put them on. I have a, I have a Lakewood case, but it's like, it just, it just to have the, it was, so we were trying to pack, it can, uh, trying to travel with the exact amount of what we need. Cause we, we all said that we also put uh, coolers in the back. Cause we need to have stuff for storage for that. And we didn't, we didn't want to leave the, that our vital stuff outside. So all stuff to go in the, in the cab. So our bows are wedged between the back seat and the, and the, and the bench seat in the back of the Ford. And it's like, if I would have known that this product was around, it's like, I would've, we would have bought them and st- actually would have strapped them to that. Cause anything that was expensive or it was, or would not be easy to replace if it got stolen went inside the back of the cab of the truck and it's like we filled that thing pretty much packed up the only thing that was in the back was uh, my ghost blind and that because those are in the cooler because they're so big but yeah you're right it's like i wanted to um when i when we're setting up for this weekend for the the mission 17 uh, i wanted to get one of the pucks and put it on the back of my headrest and take a picture with my decal along with that just to kind of like show give them that first point of view of it like why i have it there and uh give a little give a like record a quick minute video but i was always on the go because man i oh, didn't yeah. realize how busy i was gonna be because it's like as soon as i got there it's like it's a, it's our first archery event so it's like everybody's got to come talk to you you want to go talk to everybody else 
And it's like all you're focused on going from there and then doing the shoot, meeting other people. Um, I, I just released an episode for this past weekend on on the uh, today. So this way people can listen to our thing. Because every time I go to one of these big events, it's like I, I set my podcast gear up to be able to travel and such. But that's what was really cool about it because I didn't know how many people was going to see it, But a lot of people either like, hey, we see it on the internet, Shields. Or they never seen it at all, and that's what was really cool about it. Because I mean, people, a lot of there was a few ladies that were actually going up to my wife because she was she carried hers on her hip the entire entire thirty targets we went through because it, it's pretty easy traveling, so that's what she chose for. But the even on your hip, it's still comfortable because it's like it's not like it's pulling down on a shoulder like you don't you're not having all that weight. The way the puck is designed and the way it works for the belt, it distributes everything along that along your waistline. So this way, then you're able to still have your freedom, but being able to take your bow, bring it up, and use it to hold your binos was quite the eye opener for a lot of people. Like, I like that. That's pretty cool because we're shooting three targets. Yep. I mean, how, how many times have you seen somebody hold a bow and lay the binos oh, all night long? And that's not steady. I've done it trying to glass. Is that a cow elk 80 yards away or not? I'm like, and finally, I just dropped the bow in the mud and I'm like, nope, okay, I'd have to pick my bow back up. And now I really do spin that around a lot. And you can kind of put both hands on the binos and just, you know, anchor down. And it, it is an, it is a quick glassing platform. It is. It is very convenient for that. And like you said, with, with having it on the center of your back, it's way it distributes the weight. It's you can definitely tell. Like I, I used the the well, as you can tell on this, on this bow up behind me here, I had the the blue bow hitch on there, and that only rested on one shoulder blade. Now the product itself is awesome because it's like you have that ability to be able to grab it, bring it up, and draw and shoot and so that. But when it comes down to when you're walking and you're doing two, three hundred yards, four hundred yards, walking around a couple of miles, that weight on your shoulder really it lets you know it's there after a period of time. I know like. Today, I've been going like this all day long to stretch on my arm, but that's just because uh, I hadn't shot. I haven't shot that much. Like I've probably shot well. Let's see, Saturday, well over 100 arrows, and then typically on a, on a warm up day, I'll, I'll shoot maybe 30 to 40. So it's like oh, my arms were all tore up from that. But it was a good. What people don't realize is, you know, whether you're target, whether you're 3D, or whether you're you know hunting. live animals hunting, right? By carrying that bow, you're inducing all that fatigue and you're going to be less accurate than somebody who's not carrying their bow. I mean, let's, let's go to golf rules. If you've got the Porter behind you, you know, the, <laughs> the kid pulling your golf clubs and hands you your club when you need it versus you lugging your clubs. There's a reason that rich people pay for somebody to tote their clubs around. Right. Yes. So they can be more accurate and they can be more proficient. So truly by implementing and using one of these systems in your archery style it doesn't matter whether you're indoor target 3d outdoor hunting whitetail hunting elk hunting cape buffalo hunting it really doesn't matter if you tailor it and kind of use it for you you can reduce that that arm and shoulder fatigue immensely instead of you know everybody else between rounds whatever it is is sitting there holding their bow and fatiguing your, those muscles you know and that's why a bunch of those guys came up with the bow feet and indoor target, sure, if you've got your stabilizers set right and the bow feet set right, great. But one person knocked that thing over and you're not having a good day. And oh, that is so true. Those do not work on a total archery challenge course. I mean, they just don't. Don't don't put your bow in the dirt. Don't put your cam in the dirt. Get a bow spider, hang it on your hip. And, you know, just when you're pulling arrows, it's really nice to, instead of saying, 
here, hold my bow to your buddy while I go pull the arrows. Hang it on your hip and you pull your arrows and you walk away. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your safari hunt. What are what are some of the preparation steps to get yourself ready to be able to go over to it? I know there's a process where you have to go get shots and stuff to be prepared for it and get some vaccines. Can you give give uh, the audience an, an, uh, a breakdown of what you have to go through from start to finish? So the CDC has some guidelines on what you probably should be inoculated for, right? And we're not going to get into the political realm of vaccines, but we can uh, discuss it. You know, typhoid and malaria and, you know, <laughs> hepatitis are all bad things and we have cures for those. So, you know, definitely uh, I would consult with your physician and, and look at that list and make sure you're, uh, you know, if you're going to malaria zone, 100% malaria pills, I would definitely have, you know, tetanus and some hep shots and a couple others. But don't drink the water. That's just, you know, that period. Yeah. If you're in town, don't drink the water. If you're out of town, don't drink the water. Drink bottled water. Just make, because you know what? I've done a lot of wilderness stuff where I've drinking out of a lot of streams and I've never had GRD. And I, I, you find the right stream where you're bottling it, you know, a hundred yards from the source. Could you get GRD? Heck yeah. Are wild animals drinking out of it? Heck yeah. But there in, in the uh, eagle caps, I would just pull over and fill my Nalgene up all day long out of cold, clear streams, and I never got sick. But if I got sick, I'm in America where I can go to a hospital. And, exactly. Right? Now, I've since changed my opinion on that. Like, I don't want to get Giardia if I have a 10-day elk hunt because I'm going to ruin the rest of the elk hunt. So it's just, it's way too easy to take tablets or purification or, or a pump or Right, I got a gravity feed pump that's no, it's not as high a micron, but it's gonna filter GRD out, and that's the only one I care about. So again, that the big ones are get some vaccines, make sure you know what you're walking into, ask the pH what depending on what country you're going to. I've been to Namibia and South Africa. My next hunt will probably be Mozambique for a free range, you know, public land hunt, but that's a lot more money and a lot more uh logistics getting to and from you know instead of driving to somebody's ranch house and kind of texas style hunting a, a high fence ranch you're you're now driving two three hours out in the bush with nobody and setting up and building a camp some of those camps are a little bit established but it's so you need to you know depending on where you're going kind of ask a few questions but like these ranch hunts and they wash my clothes every day they wipe my nose they wipe my butt <laughs> i mean i'm being facetious but yes no, I, I took two pair of clothes. I laid one in that you know, hamper, took a shower every night. I come back and my clothes are freshly washed and folded on the end of my bed with a fresh made bed, right? So these uh, safaris that they do in Namibia and South Africa on these big high French ranches, 100% take your kids, take your wives. Felt super safe, super secure. The food is five star. You know, if you've got dietary restrictions, you tell them, hey, I can't eat this that you're going to have gourmet home-cooked meals, three meals a day. I mean, they would bring us a lunchbox with hot pot pies and everything else out to the blind. And so I did, like I said, I, I went to Spot and Stock. I took my dad and brother, and they went, and they did the the in-the-box ambushing over water holes. And we just had a, a phenomenal trip. I mean, absolutely had a blast. Uh, as far as bow setup, if you're doing planes game, 
70 foot pounds of kinetic energy, 400 plus grain arrow, you know, 100 grain broadheads. Your, your standard elk or whitetail setup will be plenty sufficient. I mean, my dad pulls 55 pounds and he shot Neeland at 20 yards and got 25 inches of penetration on a 2,000 pound animal. I mean, wow. It, but I uh, was shooting 638 grain, 648 grain arrow. I took some 900 grain arrows, but my bow just did not like them. And okay. This was kind of a last minute deal. It was actually at the uh, Iowa Deer Classic. And I was talking to PH and he kind of had an opening and he said, if we we're going to do it, I could come last week. So I quickly said, Heck, I got to, no, my passport had expired exactly <laughs> two months prior. So I rushed and got my passport. But uh, South Africa is one country that you just need a COVID test to go in and out of. Right. So uh, that was relatively painless. Take a COVID test. 48 hours before you fly, show up to the airline people and fly in and they stamp your passport and off to the ranch you go. You really don't got to pack very heavy. Like I said, that all your amenities are there. You need your toiletries, a camera, change your socks, change your underwear and your bow, right? So I did something a little different. I had a 220 grain broadhead or a 175 with a 75 grain weight. So 200 to 250 grain broadheads on a 300 spine gold tip, which is 11 grains per inch. So like I said, we were right around that 630, 640 with a Luminoc. 250 feet a second, 83 foot-pounds of kinetic energy. And I got, on a 22-yard broadside shot, I got about 7 inches of penetration on that Cape Buffalo. Wow. Yeah, that's not, it's not a lot. They are, and that was seven days of spot stock. We finally started taking our shoes and socks off so we could be quiet enough because we had a tracker, two PHs with guns, a cameraman, and myself. So we had five bodies trying to sneak in on these buffalo. And about day three, I pulled the PH aside and I said, this is not working. We're not quiet enough. We're not stealthy enough. I said, how about just you and I? Mono e mono. I have a GoPro mounted to the top of my quiver on my bow, and I said, I'll get the kill shot on film. Everything else is tertiary. And so we did it. It took four more days of. I had one other really good opportunity at 19 yards, come to full draw, hit a little bit of brush with my bow, actually the stabilizer while I was coming to full draw. That buffalo heard it. He steps into the shooting lane. Stops just short of it with his body, turns his head and neck, and looks at me for about nine seconds at 19 yards. Oh, and man. I, I've had grizzly bear encounters. You know, I've been lost in the dark and had some other, you know, sheep hunts where we spent nine days in a tent and about walked off a cliff. And I've had some hair-raising experiences, but there's a different level of uh, respect when that when that thing turns and looks at you and you know that it's, I mean, it didn't get the name Black Death because it's a puppy dog. I mean, there was one other, the the seventh morning, I had a 35-yard shot. Buffalo had his head in a bush and his whole body sticking out. We snuck in. I drew back. I could feel the wind on the back of my neck. As I come to full draw, you'll be able to see this on our YouTube channel and the video. He whirls his head to check our wind, and he doesn't. it didn't even take him a second. He got a whiff of us and he was gone. I mean, 
I think from when you see the buffalo on the GoPro turn on to when I draw back is like nine seconds. As I'm drawing back, you you know, it takes a second. I'm just resting my bow, 1,001, 1,002, and he runs. I needed three more seconds, and he was – I'd already ranged him, already turned the GoPro on, already took like five more steps forward, knew it was in lethal distance. Couldn't get it done. So that was really heartbreaking the morning of day seven to – you know, because just to get within 100 yards of these things is is tough, really. And then to, because you make one wrong movement or the wind or you rustle the brush wrong and they got you pegged and they they run for about two miles after you bust them. Yeah, they, they because wow. they're so used to trucks driving in and out, people going to the blinds, they don't, they nobody walks around the property, right? So human beings walking in the woods is kind of like your guess's white tail. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it was... So, incidentally, I took a kudu one night sitting in a brush blind in a hide kind of that we built trying to ambush uh, buffalo. And that was a 14-yard frontal. And that arrow got 24 inches of penetration, 25. And uh, that was a big single single bevel broadhead and did its job just fine. Uh, and then I took a golden wildebeest at 30 yards, double long came broadside, complete pass through. Again, shooting those heavy arrows, but lighter broadheads and actually broke the broadhead on the ground on the backside. So wow. the, the bow had plenty of energy and potential. It just that shot on that buffalo. They they are armor plated for sure. So that was so that was right at the end of the day seven then when you got your buffalo? Day seven and the shuttle to Hollis to the airport is coming morning of day eight. Wow. So how does that all work out? Well, like, you no, know, can you take the meat and bring it back stateside or is that no, okay. um, they have brucellosis and hoof and mouth diseases, and we have them here, but they have them there. And our, uh, it's not State Department, it's actually Fish and Wildlife Service. Actually, I think it's U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, it's, it's under one of those federals, and they're, they are adamant that no raw animal products come into the country, right? Uh-huh. And so all the taxidermy will come pre-tanned, debugged, you know, and it basically takes a year from now until that stuff will get shipped to my door. Uh, Meat was delicious. We ate everything. I even got to eat my buffalo. We pulled the tenderloins out of it. We recovered him at 9 a.m. and we had to follow it up with a rifle. And so I have to go back and get it. I just got to get the feather in my cap of one arrow buffalo. I'm going to go with a little bit I'm going to probably go up to like a tough head, a 300 grain broadhead and step up to about a 700, 750 grain arrow. So another hundred grains of arrow, but I'm going to make sure I go with an 80 pound bow and want to be pushing that 85 to 90 foot pounds of kinetic energy. There we go. I was, I was about ready to ask, are you going to jump? Are you going to go, we could have Hoyt make a custom one. It's a 90 pound <laughs> limbs. Uh, I think 80 will do it, but 80 with a 750 to 800 grain, maybe even 850 grain arrow with that 300 grain tough head. I'm definitely going to just shoot. I'm not even going to mess around. I'm going to the tough head. So I'm guys have shot him with iron wheels. Guys have shot him with a lot of things for whatever reason, the tip of my single bevel, you know, their ribs are slightly convex and it kind of skidded along the one rib and, jittered to the side and then stuck in the edge of the other rib and never you know lost lost one whole edge on one side pretty well it didn't flatten the tip it twisted the tip 
and then it lost about a third of the blade on the other side. Wow, those bones must be extremely dense then. Oh, yeah. I wonder what um, nutrients out there that allows their bones become so so um, so strong. I think it's evolution that they uh, built built a body to withstand lions, and you know lions are a pretty pretty dangerous animal. So that is they, their ribs point. are almost touching, and where I hit him in the ribs, his ribs are about as big as my hand, about as wide. Wow! So and you're trying to space. stitch him? Yeah. How, no, I you can't him. stitch between ribs. I mean, there's a less than a quarter inch gap. You have to go through a rib. Really? So. Yeah, man, that is insane to be able to get that through there. Then no wonder you have to go so heavy. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's definitely big boy league. It's, and so we got it done. I mean, I made, I, I made a pretty good shot. Timing was a little off, but placement was fine. It was a lethal. It would have been a double long if it got in there, but. So we, uh, we got to take out the, uh, uh they got, Boston Terriers, I think. Got little rat terriers, basically, and took those out and baited up the next morning and walked in there. And that's a whole nother level of of pucker power when you're walking up on a 3,000-pound animal that could come charging out at you at any moment. So. No kidding. I know it's like uh, there's a guy on YouTube and Insta- uh, TikTok. His name's uh, Pete Griffith, and he goes after water buffalo down there in uh, Australia and such. He hunts all kinds of fun stuff, and his his feed is just always fun to watch because, like you said, everything in Africa kill you. Same thing in Australia. That's uh, that's on the list. Next is definitely to uh, now that I've done the, the the Cape buffalo and I've done bison, I've done you know North American buffalo, I've done African buffalo. I got to go do the Asian buffalo in, in Australia. I just I, I I didn't start out with that. I didn't even you know I think it was two thousand. 15 i went buffalo hunting here in the states and i don't know why i just decided that if if i was ever going back to africa i wanted to go cape buffalo hunting now that that box is somewhat checked i have to i want to redo right rematch yeah, but yeah uh, so where'd you get your uh bison at then here in the states did you get it in utah or uh, something i got it on the spokane indian reservation so now, so I, okay go ahead they have wild bison that are free range on the reservation there. And I paid for a trespass fee, I guess, because they're privately owned, right? They're owned by the tribe, not by the state. And so yeah, I got an opportunity to go hunt bison and took my wife. And it took us three days to track those bison down. And I used a, oh, probably a 470 grain arrow out of my 70 pound bow shooting 280 feet a second. And I used a three blade broadhead and got a pass through and then got another, the second shot that I followed up with stuck in the far shoulder, both lethal shots. One was high lung, one was more lung heart. Like I said, a pass through it. The first shot was a lethal, it was lung kind of heart. And he ran out there about 60. I snuck into, so the first shot was 30. The second shot was 45, 50. The 50 yard shot passed right through him. High wow. long. Good, uh, congratulations on that shot. Cause that's a long distance. Yeah. Uh, tax total archery challenge, getting out there and getting prepared for that and having the mentality of, I can hit that foam at 80 yards. You know, when, when there's an animal standing there at 27 or 32 yards, it, it, it helps. That is true. You know, I'm looking for, we have, uh, in, in Wisconsin, we have a uh, beast mode archery games and his whole fly, his, his, he's got a, it's 
completely different from what you expect from like attack. Because like a lot of people that have shot attack and shot this, they try to compare it to it, but it's it's it's, its own animal. Because Brian Austin, the guy that does it, he is he is um very um oh devilish, devious when it comes down to his 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 courses. Because straight up, straight down, similar to like what you expect to attack, but uh, he always throws something into the loop. And he's got a, a three-day event coming up in July, so I'm looking forward to going on out there and showing off the, the bow spider and such. Oh, that's uh, – that. you you kind of are the – you get to be the hero when you go do that, and everybody else is, like, lugging their bow around and asking you to hold your bow. And, you know, I tell everybody, don't don't go get your buddy a bow spider. You just get one going to hunt. And then when he says, hey, will you hold my bow? Say, no, you should have got a bow spider. Bow spider. And yeah, turn, there you go. turn and walk away from him. That should be your tagline. You should have got a bow spider. <laughs> Why are you still carrying your bow? Should have yeah, got exactly. a bow spider. Exactly. So what do you, what do you got planned for the, the remaining of the season then? For the just for the remaining of the summer. So I mean, I alluded to the fact that we filmed this. We're going to put it on YouTube, and we're going to air it the way it happened. It's not Hollywood, and you know, I'm I'm not the first guy to, uh, you know, not one arrow kill a buffalo, and I'm I'm not going to be the last guy after what I've seen. Definitely, but hopefully somebody can, you know, learn from my uh, my woes a little bit. Uh, we filmed a really cool hunt on our YouTube channel. It was a sheep hunt in Alaska, and that was two, three years ago. Filmed a javelina hunt. So I'm, I definitely don't want to be. We're we're not gonna do 52 episodes a year of bow spider TV, but we're gonna try and do one or two premium hunts and go do it and film it, kind of capture it. So this year we are headed back to Alaska. Uh, just, you know, it was kind of a spur of moment. The Cape Buffalo thing was something I wanted to do and they had an opening and I said, yeah, I can get on a plane and come, but we've been planning the, uh, the Alaska hunt for a little over a year now. So in, in August, I will be in Alaska filming for 20 days and that film will be on our YouTube channel. Oh, it'll probably be late spring next, next year. And that will be a little more, it'll be a less, it, it's still going to be how it happened, but we're going to put some high production value into audio, visual, you know, mixing sound and color and just try and really highlight what Alaska is all about and how we do it. Is that a moose hunt or a sheep hunt? Well, I'll, I'll give you one hint. We'll be on Kodiak Island for 20 days in August. Oh, there's a, there's a lot of species on that island. So I, there, it's, there's a few, but yeah. that, that's all you're going to get. You, you know what, where we're going now. Oh, that's awesome, man. Congratulations, though. It's like a hats off to anybody to be able to, to actually live out the dream, like live out their, their Indiana Jones fantasies, but in our, in our own uh, our own version of it, you know? Because like, oh, yeah. always, always, I've always um, liked the, the fact of being able to create your own adventure. And that's, we, we, we're now in a time where we can do that without having to, where we have to, I don't know, it's, it's weird because it's like you have enough money, you can do anything you want. But it's like there's where it's a weird scenario where how you can get into into certain areas and such to be able to get after what you want to do, and I'm just I'm, I'm just happy that you're able to do that and be able to get where you're at today to do that stuff. Well, I, I mean, I'll definitely tell you right now that I will never miss an archery elk season. And if you told me I had to uh, pick one species and one weapon, I'll sacrifice everything and only go archery elk hunting. Period. That's and so the rest of this stuff is kind of peripheral or tertiary or, I mean, it's still fun. It's awesome. And I'm, I'm blessed and thankful every day that I'm now in a position to get to go do this. And, you know, I, and, you know, part of it is, I think anybody can do some of these hunts, save your pennies, you know, 
put it as a long-term goal and say, I'm going to do this. And Africa was expensive. It's definitely not a, a, a cheap endeavor, but you know, it, it's not Uber elite. It, it, it is attainable. If you, if you, if you set that as a goal and want to do it. And what's really cool about Africa, I mean, Cape Buffalo hunts are 10,000, right? Doll sheep hunt in Alaska is 24,000. So if you go to Africa and you don't do dangerous game, you do planes game, you can take seven or eight animals for seven or $8,000 plus your flights, plus your taxidermy, but say 12 grand, you can shoot seven animals. So two, $3,000 an animal in Africa, you're almost 30 grand deep on a sheep in Alaska now. That's a good way to put it. I mean, you want one animal for 30 grand or you want one animal for three grand. So when you, when you look at it financially, Africa is a very target rich environment and it's a very, it's a different experience, you know, going from, uh, you know, DIY, all my elk have been quartered, put in a backpack and, and hauled miles. And sometimes they're hauled in a backpack to a spot dropped. And then I walk out, get horses and come get the horses and walk the rest away. But you know, the, the adventure of getting the meat from where we harvest the animal to the freezer is it's a whole it's a whole task in and of itself versus you know here it was the the trackers come out the truck shows up that you get the stretcher you throw it in the back of the truck and you take it back to a they have a processing plant on location right so it's a it's a different endeavor but i would definitely recommend if you're even if your your spouse, your significant other just wants to do like a photo safari, go to the ranch and tell the PH, hey, I'm going to go sit in the blind and, and shoot critters with a bow and take her around and let her go shoot critters with a camera. And I mean, you're going to have as good of photo opportunities. I mean, you could do like a, a 10 day or a seven day hunt and do even a one or a two day photo safari in Kruger National Park or one of the other parks and the thing I don't like about the parks, and we've done it before, the first trip I went and did yeah. the photo safari tourism stuff, you pull up to a water hole, similar looking water hole to what's on the ranches, and there's either elephants or lions or giraffes or whatever's there. Well, there's 10 other trucks with people all over the place with lenses taking pictures. And so you don't feel like you're Indiana Jones out on the crusade you more feel like you're disneyland waiting in line for your turn and it just it cheapens the experience but when you're on the ranch i mean you you're the only ones there you're your party so that's my two cents i would say definitely go if, if you're intrigued about it go look it up there's i was with d's visor d's visor safaris d's visor.com d's visor senior started it and his son is now taken it over and they've been doing bow hunts since 1980 something. I mean, they, they haven't been in business for <laughs> 40 years because they are a fly by night operation for sure. That is, that is, that is a good bad point because I've heard the horror stories of people spending money and hearing it secondhand where all of a sudden the pH is, was a fraud and now they're out five, six grand, you know, so it's no. just unfortunate. And there's also, there's the reputable breeders who have hundreds of thousands of acres they own. I mean, the ranch we were on with these Visor is about 20 miles long and 10 miles wide, right? You can't walk across it today. And they breed and raise all the animals there. 
they they have probably 5,000 animals and are shooting 700 to 1,000 animals a year, right? So they're shooting 15 to 20% of their herd a year. And they're actually taking and selling off more animals than what they harvest bow hunting. So every one of those animals that you take was born, raised, grew up, and lived out its life right there on that ranch and, and never knew any different, but it's still 100% wild animal, right? Versus you go to some of these small fly-by-night operations, they might have 50 acres or 500 acres, but it's a put and take. So they went out on a trailer, bought that animal, and they only have that one animal for you to harvest. And I would never, I couldn't hunt that way. It's not going to happen. And I've talked about this a little bit. You know, I said I wanted to do a DIY public land, and I'm going to go do it at some point in time. But in South Africa and Namibia, there really isn't any private or public land. It's all private. And the land that is public, that does have some hunting opportunities on it, the poaching is so rampant that the game has just been emaciated. There is no game. I mean, there's a few places you could go do it. But if you want to go experience Africa, go to one of these these reputable, you know, high, highly established big game fence. And, you know, it's it's a weird... The, their conservation model is a little different than ours. All that meat went to local meat markets. So we can't sell wild game here, right? And it's a, I think there's a good reason why we can't. And it, it's pretty evident in their public land versus private land issue, right? Because anybody can go out and shoot any critter on publicly owned land, haul it down to town and sell it. And in a third world country where there's no money, if you can go get some meat and sell it or just eat it, they do it and they will. So, but that same, in that same breath and sentence, the, the hunters from America are funding their conservation. And if we continue to see the changes that you talked about earlier in this podcast, where hunters don't go or won't go, or like, ah, I don't want to go, you know, do a high fence. That's not fair. Well, what you got to realize is that high fence game preserve that's been in operation for 40 years and is 20 miles deep and 10 miles wide, right? You can't, I mean, a kudu needs a mile by two mile area to live his whole life and he's happy. And so he's got 20 of those, right? But if we quit going, if we quit funding their conservation model, they're going to turn that into a golf course or a cornfield or name, name anything, right? An alfalfa field. And they're going to shoot every one of those game animals because they no longer have value. It's it's very cut and dry. Yeah, if, you're right. I mean, th- those animals pay for all that ground by by sacrificing 15% of the herd every year, right? But the other 85% of the herd gets to live there year after year. So, I mean, you can, you can call me a murderer or whatever you want to say for wanting to go trophy hunting. And we ate the meat. I would have brought back... All the meat I could. If I could have shipped back 150 pounds on the plane, I would have brought it. And it's honestly, Eland is better than beef. You couldn't, if I put a, an Eland steak on the table and a beef steak, you couldn't tell me which one's which. It's that good. Nice. I was going to so, ask you, out of all the animals you've had to t- chance to harvest out there, what were your favorite? Uh, zebra's pretty high on the list. Impala's good. I would say Impala's similar to our deer, right? It's done right. Impala is delicious. Uh, kudu is is better than elk for sure, but it would be a tie between zebra and eland. Uh, eland okay. is uh, that zebra was we had zebra kebabs and I it was good. <laughs> I, 
if our horses taste like that, uh, I have five horses and I know which one will be on the, the barbecue first. <laughs> <laughs> There's always one that has a personnel that just makes you upset. Uh, every horse owner loves their horses, but they all know which one they'd eat first. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. And you also have your own podcast too. So how has that been going for you? A uh, podcast is awesome. It just it was something that came about, you know, kind of like Bo Spider. I saw an opportunity and a need, and it was something I wanted to do, so we went after it. And we started that. Radcast Outdoors started in 2019. We're a little lackadaisy on our schedule. We're not very good about getting our weekly episodes out, but you know, I think we're on episode 80-something. That's still really good. Some cool guests. I mean... Jim Zumbo and Larry Dahlberg. I, I, there's there's 10 other guys on that list of, you know, just really cool guys. And yeah. it's mm-hmm. getting to meet and talk to people that I would have never got to. And so we do a lot of hunting and fishing on our podcast and Radcast Outdoors is the website. And there's a link right from bowspider.com. Now I'll be putting that information in there. It's like even I'm my philosophy is when it comes to podcasting. It's like there's no competition, just only collaboration because it's the best way to go. Because it's like there's there's millions of listeners out there. It's like why not collaborate? And it's I'm I've hit triple digits now, and I've gotten to the point now where I'm booked out for like the next like there's gonna be this week I have a podcast on Wednesday, and the next week after that I'm gonna have a podcast on Sunday Monday. And so I I know the the stresses of putting it all together. So it's 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 fun. It's it's you, like I, I completely agree with you. The people you get to meet, and you could be surprised and who would respond to you that were willing to come on your podcast. Like I've gotten to speak to like, Tim Kennedy, Rich Graham, Eddie Petty, uh, some some real savages. Even Austin Lester out of uh, uh, Utah. He's a mountain rescue guide. He was part of um, Raul Martinez and uh, the oh what's his what's their organization they're with. Oh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but you, 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 if, if you know who Raul Martinez Jr. is out of Arizona, you, you, you know who I'm talking about. But being in the podcast world just gives you that freedom to collect a whole bunch of stories and get to talk to and meet a bunch of people. I mean, I never thought I'd ever get to meet like the, the Chris Ham from HHA. And it's like now we talk almost on the daily. So it's, it's, a, it's amazing and, and, and blessed you can be if you really put your head into it and your heart into it. And it's with, with the, the social media. It's very transparent, and they know when people are lying to you or bullshitting you. So oh, yeah. it's just it's just easy to be straight up and honest with everybody. And I've, I've I'm I'm having a lot of fun doing. It. I've gotten to travel with my podcast, and it's like I encourage like we we belong to I belong to a group on on Facebook. There's like sixty of us podcasters, and we exchange stories. We talk about equipment. We talk about headsets, microphones. It is just a fun thing to discuss. We also talk about like how what are, how do we. Uh, do write-ups and are we doing no show notes and how we do all that fun stuff just to kind of help each other out because there's there's people that are just starting a podcast and there's like guys like me that there's other folks like me that have over 200 episodes and it's like it's good to be able to pass this information like um eric clark from the okay's uh, podcast okay's hunter podcast he went he did his first show this year in uh the open seasons there, the Dells, and we're all asking him questions like, how did the inventory go? How was the sales? How was the POS system you were using? How did that all go over? Was Is it worth the energy to do it? Is it like t- that type of scenario? Because he's the one, only one, the, he's one of the very few hunting podcasts that have gotten that level where it's like they do podcasts first and then merchandise. You got the, uh, the working class bow hunter guys, but those guys got 500 episodes and they've been doing it for a long time and they go to all the trade shows and such. 
great group that's of what guys. i would say is is you know i was about a decade late to the podcast game for sure but it's it's such a cool form of of media i mean it's the long form media and i don't care who you're listening to i, I love to listen to rogan and, and uh, jocko a lot right but i i listen to shapiro and peterson and a lot of those controversial guys because you know I like to listen to people who the media isn't going to give more than a 30 second soundbite and try and make them look distorted and, and corrupt. Right. And when you can sit down and listen to somebody's two hour story and kind of get a gist and a feel of, Hey, this guy, you know, <laughs> I hope everybody realizes I'm just a, just a blue collar bow hunter that likes to go, go hike in the woods and shoot stuff with my bow. That's, that's what I do, man. Mm-hmm that's the whole facet about it. It's like, we do this just for, for fun. And if we, if we get lucky and the timing's right, then we escalate it from there. So it's, it's a remarkable feeling. And then being part of doing different charitable things and doing giveaways. And it's just part of the joys of being able to do it because now I can give somebody less fortunate opportunity for it. I mean, I got to have a uh, Tyson trunk on the podcast and he has a dust off project. And what that all entails is that, if somebody, if you have an old bow that's sitting in your closet and you, and you don't want, don't, you, don't, you know, nobody's going to want to buy it, but you can, you can send it to him with his connections in the, in the industry. They'll set it all up for somebody to use. They'll, they'll replace the strings, replacing, put a rest on it for them, a, a sight on it, put a peep in it, and they're ready, they're ready to rock and go. They'll set it. If you want to do a target bow, they'll set you up with one of those. If you want to do a uh, hunting bow, they'll set you up with that. You have to just be qualified with a D214, and they just recently expanded to EMS, EMTs. And the police officers, firefighters, and such, because that's an awesome program. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's like I got to meet um, Rod Zirkel here at the Iowa Classic, and I got to listen to his, his story. And man, just it, it, it makes me emotional because he, what he went through as a firefighter and how he's still standing is just remarkable. And, and how archery has pulled him out of his shell. And got him into interested in talking to more people and talking about relaying his testimony and his story and such. Oh yeah, no, I'm. I mean, I don't have any checkered horrible past. I mean, I've obviously had my share of roadblocks and and hard knocks in life for sure. But you know, getting to be just a participant in this archery industry, I mean, it's. Uh, I haven't really worked a day in my life since I started this. Really, I mean, there's been a lot of days. It's been you know. 18, 19 hour days between setting up a booth, working the booth and getting out of there. And I'm still doing it, still enjoying it. Still going to keep going after it as long as I can. Now, are you going to set up anything on any of the, any of the mountain fests or any of the tacks coming up this summer? Yeah, we'll be at a couple of the tacks, a couple of the total archery challenges and then Northwest mountain challenges. And it's, I'm running up against the hard deadline of getting ready to go film in, in Alaska. But yeah, I have uh, seven scheduled. So I'll, seven weeks in a row, I'll be in a different city or state setting up a, a booth and get to show people the product and talk about it. Last year we did, I think we did 13 events or 14. And kind of this year I just scaled it back and just said, hey, I, I can't be gone three months straight every weekend in a different city. And I, ne- I need a little bit of time for me. So. Yeah, and especially to make the wife happy and the kids, some of that. They, I we all we, we I get you're building a business too, but it's like you, you yourself have to have a break because I was looking at my schedule. Like the next six weeks, I got something planned every single weekend. That was my probably one of my favorite things about Africa is your phone doesn't work. I I didn't turn international calling on. Yeah, we had Wi-Fi at the ranch, and I did post every night a, a little social media, Instagram, Facebook story to, to keep everybody you know informed and updated, but. Other than that, 
I sat back by the fire, enjoyed hors d'oeuvres, told stories from the day, got to hang out with my brother and dad and not really, I didn't read emails. I didn't check voicemails. I did, you know, follow up with like, you know, it's like, yeah, David's got, we'll schedule when he gets back. And so, you know, a guy needs that every once in a while, but I would say to anybody out there that's got an idea for a product or a business or, I mean, I, I don't care if it's a lawn mowing business and right now you're working for the city doing something else or you're working for the man doing something. If you've got an idea and you're you're on the fence about whether you should start or where you should start, the the time is now and the, the place is now and, you know, start with what you have and bootstrap it and just keep keep moving forward, right? There was at least a hundred times Bow Spider could have been at a roadblock that I could have thrown my hands up and said, all right, that's it. Obviously I'm not meant to do this and walk away. And the difference was the persistence. It was just every, and there was, uh, I'll, I'll sneak peek you. I was going to college. I was working swing shift at a, just a college manufacturing job. Uh, we had our first kid with another one on the way. And so I was being daycare during the day, going to swing shift at night doing my homework when I got home from swing shift. And then I would spend between a half hour and an hour on Bow Spider, you know, just information, research, data collection. And I do that till I was tired about 2 a.m., 2.30, and then I'd sleep till 7 a.m. when my wife woke me up to go to work and I'd take over for the kid. And then the kid was to school and then I was to school and then I was to work and then I was to homework. And I did that for, I don't know how I did it, I did it for two and a half years of, you know, it took me almost four years to get my degree. But after a while, we finally got it figured out that I couldn't work, do this and do school. And Bow Spider finally became something. And I got my degree the same summer that we did our first series of tax. So I had a couple of college classes, courses I was still doing, but I quit my swing shift job and said, I'm, I'm going to put all the chips on on black and we're going to roll the dice and I think I can make it go. I think everybody that's has your product is very thankful that you did make that decision, that hard, the tough decision and it's, it's paid for itself. It, it has. And I, I mean, we're coming out with a couple new renditions, iterations, nothing, nothing earth shattering, groundbreaking, but we went from our what, three skews in 19 to about 15 skews in 20. And now we have 40 some skews. So there's hats and t-shirts and sweatshirts and different Molly pucks and regular pucks. And so we're, we're, we're expanding and we're going to try and try and keep pushing that envelope a little bit, but it's a, uh, it's definitely, I would say it was much easier the first go around with just product number one. Cause I didn't have any employees asking me, what are we doing about this? And I didn't have any quotas or ship dates or, you know, budget meetings. I just had one single goal of get this thing in a package and get it on somebody's hands and get it on the shelf right now that we're working on kind of accessory two and three. My time is so split and divided that it's, it's hard to put everything aside and say, no, you guys could just wait, but I'm going to work on this for a week and solve this problem. And honestly, that, that mindset of the adventure bow hunter, you know, cause you go on a seven or a 10 day hunt anywhere, any species, let's pick elk hypothetically day five, you get an encounter and you blow it, the wind blows it or you hit a limb or whatever happens. Right. 
if you have the mentality of, you know what, that's it. I'm not going to get an elk. I just put five hard days in, in a seven day hunt and I'm going to turn and walk away and go home. You're never going to get to that goal line. Right. And one thing I learned early, early on is every time I blow a stock, blow up an opportunity, I audibly in my head count the next 10 steps. And I say, those are the first 10 steps to my next elk encounter. I turn and walk away and count 10 steps. And I'm like, okay, the next 10 steps to my next elk encounter are done. Those are the hardest 10 steps. Let's get it done. Let's go. Right. And so like this Buffalo hunt, I had two, two stock opportunities where I drew a bow under 30 yards in the first seven days. And it came down to the last evening and it still wasn't pretty. Wasn't the way I planned it or wanted to go in my head, but I'm coming home with a Buffalo and I'm still pretty proud of getting it done the, the hard way. Hey, that's a great way to end it on that, on that note there. What are some of the best ways to, to find you, David? Uh, website is Bowspider. Uh, there's email, phone number there if you have like Bowspider questions. Um, Instagram Messenger is kind of, I, uh, I try and keep up on all the socials, but it's a, it's a never ending task. So, you know, either shoot us a, a message on social or send us an email if you need to. Uh, give us a give us a call and our address is on there and if you're just looking for product we have 120 retailers and those are all on the website i mean from shields to owls to your mom and pop bow shops and definitely go support your local pro shop that's i mean there's a reason that we've got them in their shop and if you can support them and get them from them that i i gotta sell them to them too so but if you're don't have a local shop and you want one by all means we'll uh Order online, we'll ship it direct to you and get it to you. And if you have any questions, we have how-to videos on YouTube. We have our hunts on YouTube, but we're we're just a small mom and pop business, and we're we'll try and take care of you. Yeah, getting back to that the the how-to, I did. I spent uh, thir- Friday night figuring out how to. No, it was Thursday night figuring out how to mount it to my wife's backpack, the the puck and stuff like that. So yeah, that that video came in ha- it came in handy. Now I was going to ask. I should ask you this earlier. I've noticed that one of my straps is backwards, is upside down. So I, so because like you know, I figured like your idea is to have bow spider right side up on both sides. Do you guys actually manufacture a left and right hand uh, strap, or, or just just one strap and that's it? The one strap universal. So you get okay. one that reads vertical and one that doesn't. So. Okay, that's what I was wondering because it's like, you know, it's like it would be it would make sense to have both of them upside up, right side up, you know, so this way you can see it, just to have that the pro, uh, that uh, uh, packaging. But it's like, now that makes sense. Why? One's right side, one's upside down. I get it now. No, because if if we did that, somebody's going to get two lefts and somebody else is going to get two rights. And now I got to track a left and a right. So we just track one and you get one that's upside down and one that's vertical. And that's the way it is. (laughs) It's a way to be. Well, thank you, David, for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it on here. And I've heard nothing but great. There you have it, folks. He's everything I've heard about him is just absolutely true. Humble, kind, hardworking. And there you go. All right, Jeff, I appreciate it. And, you know, until until next time, shoot straight and enjoy yourself out there. Thank you.